0: welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and deeply personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On Today's episode, I'm talking about a classic French film from 1934, Jean Vigo's wondrous and magical L'Adelon. On the surface, it's the simple story of Jean and Juliette, newlyweds who begin their life together on the boat where Jean lives and works. When things get boring and monotonous, Juliette begins dreaming of Paris, and when the boat stops near it, she wanders off to explore the city by herself, leaving Jean behind. This separation of the two lovers will test their new and fragile marriage. Jean Vigo is an iconic director who died tragically at the age of 29 and left behind few films, but his small output continues to influence filmmakers today. He was admired by French new wave legends like Francois Truffaut and Eric Romare. He had a gift for imbuing magic and whimsy into stories about ordinary people. La is his only feature film, and it's not to be missed. In this episode, I talk all about Vigo, the making of the film, and how the film explores romance, marriage, and so much more work. I absolutely adore this film. I'm very passionate about it. I loved rewatching it for this episode, so I'm so excited to share this with you. There are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work that I'm doing here on Her Head and Films, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreoncom films for more information. That's p a t r e o n.com Slash Her Head in Films. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So I won't go on any longer. Here is my episode about Jean Vigo's 1934 film, La Talon. first saw La Talon in 2012. It's hard to believe that I saw it that long ago. Eight years. I saw this film really at the beginning of my journey. I guess you could say of becoming a cinephile. I trace my cinephilia and my really intense obsession and love for film back to around 2011 when I was in my very early 20s. I was about 22. I was in college at that time and I saw Chris Marker's La Jete. That was a really big film for me. And I started to get interested in European art house cinema. I talk about a lot of this in several episodes that I've done. Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7, Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura, and I have an episode about Chris Marker's La Jetée. I did a whole series a few years ago talking about when I became a cinephile. Now, before 2011, did I enjoy films and love films? Yeah, I did. I recently did a few episodes talking about a high school film appreciation class that I took when I was a teenager and how that really made me see film as more of an art form. And you can hear more about that if you want to in the episodes about Casablanca and Singing in the Rain. The year when I really got into the European films and the art house films and world cinema and films from other countries and all across the globe. That was 2011 and I dug into the classics. I got really into the French New Wave. French cinema was the doorway for me and it was the gateway for me. And of all the national cinemas out there, French cinema is still my favorite and it's one that I come back to. I still have a lot of national cinemas that I need to explore like Japanese film, more Russian films, and there's a lot of stuff that I want to see. <laughs> uh, Italian film, it really, really interests me. I want to watch more because I really loved Italian neorealism and I still do. So I still have a lot to watch even though I've been a cinephile for 10 years now, almost a decade. La was a film that I saw quite early when I was falling in love with arthouse cinema. It Continues to haunt me and rewatching it for this episode. I had not seen it since 2012. I don't think I had rewatched it. Not that I can remember. So it It's a film that really raised my spirits. I've been struggling lately with everything with this COVID-19 pandemic has been really brutal for me. It's been incredibly scary, especially here in the United States, where the response to it has been so horrible. You feel so vulnerable and you feel like you can't rely on your government. You can't rely on people. Because people don't want to wear masks right now. And they don't want to even try to prevent the spread of the virus. I'm recording this in June 2020. Over 100,000 people have died at this point in this country. It's been scary. I feel this very deep sense of vulnerability. I also feel a loss of faith. A loss of faith in humanity. A loss of faith in my government. And I feel lost I will be honest with you. On top of that, I have my personal issues. It was recently the anniversary of my father's death. It's been 14 years now. And he died in 2006 when I was only 16 years old. So I've almost lived as long without him as I did with him. And then his birthday came. It would have been his 60th birthday this year. And that ripped my heart from my chest I'll be honest with you. And then also Father's Day. I'm actually recording this episode the day after Father's Day. So I've been in a minefield emotionally. <laughs> both personally, you know, on the personal level of just my everyday life, trying to get through the things that I struggle with on a regular basis. Depression and anxiety and being working class, struggling. And then I'm also trying to deal with the way the world is right now and how unstable and scary and uncertain things are. I don't know how to navigate that. I don't know what to do. I have been struggling with depression lately. A big comfort to me. Has been film and when I watched Light Alone a few nights ago, I finished it. And for like for that hour or two, when I was watching it, my spirits just felt so much lighter. I felt so uplifted looking at Dita Parlow and <laughs> and um watching this beautiful film about love, but also human flaws and foibles, right? The beautiful images of this film, gosh, it just raised my spirit. It is a film full of life, absolutely full of life, with characters who are kind of whimsical and kind of eccentric, some of them, and I'm gonna go into the film shortly, but it raised me up, and that's what I look for in film, that's why I go to it, is when I'm crushed and when I'm shattered and when I just can't understand what is happening in this world. I cannot make sense of life. I feel like I i can't make sense of I haven't made sense of it for over a decade, ever since I lost my dad. Like, I don't know what I am doing. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what the point is. I don't know. I just don't. <laughs> And, you know, I'm almost 31 years old and I saw this film when I was in my early 20s and I feel like between 2012 and 2020, things have changed. The world is very different. But then I feel like in some ways, I am the same. That I've made no progress at all in my life. And I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. But it's just this is why I go to cinema. Is for that feeling that this film gave me for a, for an hour and a half. And in the aftermath. Like in the afterglow of the film. I was like wow this really raised me up. This really made me feel happy for a little while. That's really all I can ask from a film. Is that it takes me somewhere. That it makes me feel something. It may make me feel sad sadness. It may make me feel joy. It may make me feel a host of emotions, and I think Jean Vigo definitely did that with this film. I think I appreciate the film now that I am older. You wouldn't think that there would be a drastic change in who you are between your early 20s and then your early 30s, but I do feel like I am different, that I have matured, and when I saw it in 2012, I was just discovering film. I was just learning about it, figuring out what appealed to me and what I loved and I I had not seen a whole lot of art house films. I didn't know yet what I was looking for in a film, what I needed from it. I loved it at the time. I absolutely adored it and I knew that there was something special about it and now watching it eight years later, I feel that special quality, that magic all over again And for me, that's kind of the hallmark of a classic, is does the magic last? Does the magic take you over again every time you watch it? You know, I've been thinking lately, like, what kind of advice would I give a young cinephile? What advice would I give a young person who might be listening to these episodes? I don't know if young people listen to me. I've gotten messages from people and they tend to be either older than me or around my age in their 30s. So I have no idea if the kids these days are listening to the Her Head and Films podcast. or listening to me. I don't know why a teenager or 20-something would be listening to me, really. But if you are out there, if you're in college and you're studying film or whatever, you're, you're just now getting interested in art house cinema, what I would tell you, and I guess it's what I would have told myself at that age, is think for yourself. And what matters is what you feel about a film. I think it's actually even much harder now. Back in 2012, I was on Tumblr. That was my social media at the time. I was not on Twitter. I wasn't on any kind of social media really except for Tumblr. And Tumblr was the way that I discovered films. I got recommendations from people. But then I also just followed film blogs and saw images that people posted. They would post screenshots, GIFs, things like that. And I remember I saw this image of Dita Parlow in her wedding dress, in the mist, um, on the barge, on let alone. And I thought, wow. What is this? I I felt haunted by it immediately. I felt enchanted and fascinated by it. And I ended up watching the film as a result. And I just recently returned to Tumblr. I had left for quite a few years. I was more on Twitter. You know how these things go. Like you're on different social media sites. I like Instagram. I, I like places that are more visual. I've gotten really frustrated with Twitter lately. I think it's probably one of the most toxic social media websites right now. And I found that I needed to get away from it and limit my time on it. But I still wanted to engage with cinema. And so I've gotten more into Instagram because it's visual. And then also Tumblr. I returned to Tumblr. And already, I've only been on Tumblr for a few days. I've already come across so many films that I want to watch. It's a one, it's an interesting sort of film culture on there. And I just prefer the blogs that are purely visual where they they don't do reviews, they don't do any of that, they just post photos. So it's been nice to get back to the purity of the image, because that is what attracts me to a film. It can be, I'm very idiosyncratic with film. You know, one, one day I can be watching A Barbara Hammer feminist film. I just watched a Barbara Hammer film called Audience that I loved. I can watch that one day, and then I can watch a Peter Greenaway film like I just did uh, last night called The Belly of an Architect. It has Brian Dennehy in it. I've wanted to see it literally for years because I am obsessed with the soundtrack for the film. The soundtrack I've listened to for probably close to a decade. The music is part of my life at this point. But the film was never available. It's a very hard to find film and I found it streaming and I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my god, I've wanted to see this film for ages. I've never seen a Peter Greenaway film. I was like, well, I'm obsessed with the soundtrack. I have to watch this film. I have to. My relationship with film is really emotional and personal. I envy people who they can focus on one type of cinema for months at a time or one director, right? Like they might choose a director and say, I'm gonna watch the entire body of work by this person. Or they'll say, I'm gonna watch Italian cinema and focus completely on Italian cinema or French cinema. Me, I'm watching the most random stuff. One minute I'm watching a feminist documentary. The next I'm watching The Belly of an Architect. The next I'm watching Jean Vigo. From day to day, you never know what I'm gonna watch. But that's okay. That's my approach. That's what works for me. And you as a cinephile you have to figure out what works for you. Social media can be a wonderful tool of discovery. I would never paint it with one brush and say, oh it's horrible. I am a cinephile because of Tumblr. I am. I saw images. I met people through Tumblr who recommended films to me and they changed my life and it and I discovered films, I fell in love with films that way, and so it's been wonderful to get back to that. It's great to be on social media at times. When people are sharing the things that they love and that they're passionate about, it can be a space of sharing and connection and discovery, and then it can also be really toxic. And it can also be very clickish, And it can also be very judgmental people going on about the films they hate and the films they love and judging other people based on what films they watch. It can just be strange. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily fit. In it. I don't know if I fit into film culture online or on social media. I just try to do my own thing and share what I'm passionate about. On those spaces, what I'm trying to say is that on those spaces, you're going to get a lot of opinions and you're going to get barraged with a lot of stuff. But I think you need to carve out private spaces where you think deeply about what you watch and come to your own conclusions. You can read a million reviews and you can go to Rotten Tomatoes and see the tomatoes meter. And there can be tons of people on social media who love a film and it might not work for you. And it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you stupid. It doesn't make you less than them. You don't like the film. It's fine. <laughs> you know, like liking a film or hating a film, that doesn't indicate anything about who you are or your moral character. <laughs> think for yourself and think critically and stand by what you love and stand up for what you love and what you're passionate about. I've covered so many different films on this podcast from made for TV films in the 1990s to films from my childhood. It doesn't matter to me whether a film is important. What matters to me is that it's important to me, that it has meaning and significance for me. It may not be popular among the film people on social media, the film crowd, (laughs) whoever these people are, or the cool people in college, right? I don't know. Do cinephiles hang out in college? I don't know. I never met these people. So what I would say to a young person is figure out what you love and figure out what works for you. Think for yourself. And that goes beyond film. We're in a very complicated time. Try to think for yourself and seek out opinions and seek out different viewpoints. But at the end of the day, it's okay to have an opinion. And it's okay if that opinion doesn't align with everybody around you. Sometimes you can't be a conformist. Sometimes you have to go your own way and believe what you believe. And that's okay. And it's okay to stand up for what you believe in and what you think. I don't know. I think that's really important. I think it's important... To create your own canon. i That's what I've done. I've created my own canon. Um, I've made a list out of the films that are essential to me. And that mean something to me. And that were important through my discovery of art house cinema. And are important to me still. And I'm still adding to that canon. And that canon is going to be different from your canon. The the person who's listening to this. Create your own And if it has really famous directors who are not on it, okay, whatever. Some directors are going to work for you, others are not. And it's okay. I've just always struggled with self-hatred and I've always struggled to have opinions and to speak them, to speak my mind and to share what I think and believe. That has been a struggle throughout my whole life. And so it has taken a lot for me to get to the point where I actually share what I think of a film and where I'm not scared and I don't feel inferior and I don't feel like oh god these other people are so much smarter than me and they hate this film but I love it and like I just I say my piece and I stand by it and that I don't know some of you may not realize how hard that is for me it is so hard. It is so hard for me and it has been my whole life for me to actually have a voice and have an opinion and to speak and to say something because I always felt like I wasn't good enough and I wasn't smart enough and I had no worth and I had no value and I still struggle with that every single day of my life. Every single day I wake up and I hate myself. I just deeply hate myself and I don't know how to stop. And I'm trying, I'm trying to be kinder. I'm trying to have compassion for myself. And I know this is a tangent, but it's like, it's been hard for me to speak because I feel like I haven't been listened to and I haven't been heard. And so it's just been hard for me to have a voice, to find my voice. To feel like I have worth and that I have something to say that other people should listen to. And that's hard for me. And I guess I just want to tell you, if you're younger and you're just discovering films, watch what interests you. Of course, watch the classics. Watch Truffaut. Watch Vigo, right? But also watch some obscure film that nobody's heard of if it interests you. And follow your passions and follow your interests, even if they don't align with other people's. Believe in yourself. And follow your intuition and your gut. Because that's what matters. Is what are the films that are important to you. And how they touch you. And how they affect you. Like, I really believe in that. And create your own canon. And for me, La alone is in my canon. It's very, very important to me, and I loved rewatching it and revisiting it because so much has happened in those eight years. I've watched more films. I've watched thousands of films over the course of these eight years. I've seen so many more directors, and I've matured. I've gone through things. I've formed more of my ideas about film, but I also want to stay soft and malleable and open to different possibilities. So there might be directors that I haven't explored yet. I never never say never. Just because I'm not interested in a movement right now, I'm not interested in a director now, it doesn't mean in a few years they might not speak to me in some way or I might want to explore them. And a great thing about being a cinephile is you're always discovering. Let alone, I'm so glad that I saw it at a young age, and that I was open to it, and that I felt the magic of it, and now I feel the magic again eight years later. I think there is great value in rewatching things and re-reading books like I used to not like that I used to be like oh I watched it I read it I'm moving on but as I get older I realize oh yeah there's value in this there's value in going back to a film that you loved or a book that you loved because I think the greatest art and it may not be objectively great other people may not think it's great but it the art that is great to us the art that means the most to us I think it evolves according to where we are in our lives and when we come across it. So we notice new things, or new things are revealed in the act of revisiting it. And I think that's really important. So if you're at the beginning of your cinephile journey, just wait a few years and revisit some of the films that you're watching now, and you might have a totally different view of them. You might not like them, or you might love them even more. We change, we evolve, and it's okay. It's okay if, say, five years from now, or eight years from now, you don't love that film. But maybe you needed to see it when you did. Maybe you needed to watch it when you did. And even though it doesn't give you much now, it gave you something in that moment. And just always be open. I try to be open as much as I can to different genres and different, I mean, do I have genres that I'm not really gonna watch a lot of? Yes. I don't really love westerns. I just don't. Do I think High Noon is a pretty good film? Yeah, I've watched some. So I don't want to say never, that I'll never watch another Western. You never know. Things evolve and things change. Just try to be as open as you can, but still have your own opinions and think for yourself and figure out what you think of something, what you think of a film. So I've <laughs> I've gone on my tangent long enough. Let's talk about Jean Vigot, the making of La Lombe, and then I'll talk about the film itself and why I love it. So La would be part of something called French poetic realism. It's one of my favorite things. I love so many of the films that would be included in the French poetic tradition, I guess you could say. Everybody talks about the French New Wave, and I like the French New Wave too. I watched a lot of French New Wave when I was first becoming a cinephile. I watched a lot of Truffaut and Godard and all of that and Varda. All of that was really important to me. But I have not watched a new wave film probably in ages. It's been many years. I just haven't gone back to it. I saw Breathless, The 400 Blows. I watched a lot of the the new wave when I first started out with the with my cinephilia, but I just haven't really returned to it in a long time. I probably will eventually. I really did like The 400 Blows. That was that was pretty important to me. That was one of the first films I saw when I was getting into art house cinema. So, everybody talks about the French New Wave. Well, I love French poetic realism, and I have found myself going back to more of the classic French directors, like Jean Vico, like Jean Renoir, Jacques Becker, off the top of my head, of course, no names will come, Robert Bresson. I love Bresson. So there's a lot of uh, the older directors that I go back to, and sometimes that kind of gets overlooked, right? Marcel Carnet is is a really big one for me, and I want to explore more of the classic French cinema. And so I love French poetic realism. It came out of the 1930s, really, and it was films that were made in that decade. So Criterion Collection has this essay by the writer Luc Sante, and it's about Ladelon. And he also talks about French poetic realism, the, the 1930s. And I wanted to share this passage because I think it's really important in encapsulating what French poetic realism was. Quote, the decade scarred at birth by the worldwide crash was a hard time filled with labor strife, unemployment, political clashes, and fear of what was going on in Germany, Italy, and Spain. Popular culture in general tended toward the acerbic and fatalistic when it was not numbly saccharine. Movies, too, could be escapist and bland, but those that were not were stunning. An extraordinary run of pictures, often retroactively herded under the banner of poetic realism, from Rene Clair's Under the Roofs of Paris to Marcel Carnet's Le Jour Lev. Those movies combined a romantic outlook and a propensity for dreamy musing with an unblinking view of the torn social fabric. They reflected the twinned influences of surrealism and the Soviet modernist filmmakers in their coupling of transcendence and grit, their heady, plunging views, and their insistent inclusiveness. They were made by people who truly inhabited their time, who could not separate public from private or subjective from objective unquote. I love Le Jour Seleuve. That's the film I think I fell in love with Jean Gabin, and I love him. I have a great love for all things French, and I have an obsession with France. I took French when I was in high school and in college because from a very early age, I loved French art and French culture and I've just always been in love with it and so that's a big reason also why I think I'm in love with French cinema is that I have completely created a fantasy of France (laughs) in my mind for some reason. I love French writers and um, you know, French literature, all of it. I I love it. Um, From an early age, I loved Edith Piaf and French music. I don't listen to a ton of French music. So I love French books, culture, music, films, art. I was, when I was younger, I really fell in love with the Impressionists. And as we know, Impressionism was big in France. So I've just always had this love affair with that country. I've never been to it. I've never traveled outside of the United States. But I guess I've just always felt like I should have been French or something. I don't, I know that's probably ridiculous to say. And I'm sure if there are French people listening, they're probably like, this place ain't all it's cracked up to be, I'm sure. We always romanticize places that are completely different to where we grew up. Like in my mind, France is is this fantasy. And then of course, there are people who live in France who are like, no, this is not the best place ever. You know, there are poor people in France. There are people struggling in France. And they certainly wouldn't say it's some dream to live there. But in my mind, (laughs) France is a beautiful place where I wish I could be. I just always love that ideas like the cafes and Paris and the museums and the way people value they value culture in a way that they don't here in the United States. Like they value literature, they value art, they value intellectualism and, and cinema and like all this stuff. And it just France looms very large for me in my life and I, I just I love I love the films set there and and all of that. So a little bit about Jean Vico and his importance. He was an important figure in French cinema history, even though he only made a few films. And Ladalon is his only feature-length film. He made a few um, short films, and then he made Ladalon. So he made the short film Apropos Nice in 1930. Jean Thierry in 1931. Jean Thierry was like a swimmer, and it's a very short film of him in the water. Zéro de Conduit in 1933, and let alone in 1934. Yes, at times, my little French accent will come out in this episode. Do I feel ridiculous? Yes. And yet, I feel the need to make you suffer through my French accent. <laughs> Jean Vigo died from tuberculosis at the age of 29 in 1934. That's when he died. He had struggled with tuberculosis for much of his life. That was a big disease in the early 20th century, right? It was a big disease for a long time. He left behind a legacy that in his lifetime was overlooked. He was quite overlooked. But he grew larger as a figure and his work gained more appreciation after the Second World War. His work would go on to inspire many of the filmmakers of the French New Wave and many more. He's inspired many directors throughout the years. His films are remarkable for their rebellious quality um, that was often censored. He really bucked the establishment and he made films with a personal quality as well. He melded the ordinary and the surreal to create scenes that really live in your mind long after you watch them. Think of the pillow fight in Zéro de Conduit, which is gorgeous. Think of the underwater scene in La which I'll talk about. Really the stuff of dreams. He takes you into dreamlike places, but he always focuses on ordinary characters who live ordinary lives. So it's the fantastical and the dreamy that's discovered in everyday life. And I would describe him as kind of whimsical. The Criterion Collection has released um, a set of Jean Vigo's films. And there's some good extras on there and I watched all of them. I watched some documentaries, everything that was part of the Criterion Collection edition of the film, and there's a conversation between Francois Truffaut and Eric Romare. Romare describes uh, Vico as like strange and weird. I would say he's more whimsical. I would use whimsy more for me personally, rather than strange or weird, because there's nothing menacing about what's in Vigo's films for me. Like, let Alone is not menacing or dark. It's the fantastical, it's the surreal, but it's done in a light hearted way or a spirited way, and I think I would describe it more as whimsical. Jean Vigo's father was an anarchist who died either, it was either suicide or murder, we don't know, but he died in jail. He was jailed because he was a pacifist during the First World War, and he was accused of treason. Vigo was very young at the time, he was not even a teenager, he was around 12 or 13 when his father died, and I wonder if that affected him. I think it's interesting that his father was an anarchist and somebody who obviously was anti-establishment, anti-status quo, and you kind of see that in Vigo's films where I think he focuses more on misfits, outsiders, people who kind of are on their own path. <laughs> and Père Jules would be a good example of that in La alone. There are quite an interesting set of circumstances surrounding the making of La alone, how the film came to be, and what was done to it throughout the decades. And that's what I want to go into right now. In 1933, when Zeho de Condouille came out, the censors would not allow for it to be released. It was looked at by the censors, and they were very offended by it. It's about these boys at a boarding school and they're very rebellious in the film from what I remember. So the censors didn't like the message in the film, so it was never released when Vico was alive. It only came out later. So at that time, Jean Vico was working with a producer named Jacques-Louis Nunez. Because of the censoring of Zero de Conduit, Louis Nunez insisted that Vico's next film would be more tame, a much more tame subject matter. So, Louis Nunez chose the Ladelon script, and at first Vigo thought it was way too ordinary, but he eventually figured out how to make it his own. One example of that is that he created the character of Père Jules, played by the legendary French actor Michel Simon. Simon had done some genre noir, I want to say, and he's a very well known actor very well-known actor. So obviously Vico found ways to fit the material to his style and his aesthetic. The cinematographer for that was Boris Kaufman, who was the brother of the very famous Soviet director Zika Vertov. He directed uh, Man with a Movie Camera, which I really love. Kaufman would go on to work on many more classic films, including On the Waterfront, for which he won an Oscar, 12 Angry Men, and many more. He worked with Sidney Lumet quite a bit, and I am a Sidney Lumet fan for sure. I'd like to cover, cover some of his work eventually on this podcast. So shooting for Lattelon began in 1933, and it was a grueling shoot. Michel Simon said it was exhausting, but he did have a really great working relationship with Jean Vigo. Vigo was ill with tuberculosis, obviously, and the winter made it even worse. They were filming in the wintertime. According to Charles Drazen, in his book, The Faber Book of French Cinema, Vigo pushed himself quite hard, too hard, really, on the set of La And on his deathbed, apparently he said, quote, I killed myself with La So what I find so compelling is that this is a beautiful film about life created in the very midst of death. It's a film about love and forgiveness and longing and trying to accept one's ordinary life. Luke Sante wrote that, quote, it contains the whole world. Unquote. And I think he's right. I think Vigo's films throb with life and joy and wonder. And Sante went on to write, quote, does contain the world, all of life in miniature, work and love and play, dream and lust and adventure, rapture and heartbreak and reconciliation and birth and death by implication. You could think of it as made by a filmmaker who knew he was about to die and intended it as a last will and testament, stuffed to the corners with his love for the world unquote. I think that's beautiful. Reading that essay by Luc Sante, and I don't know if I'm saying his name right. I hope so. I was like, I need to read more Luc Sante. He writes beautifully about French cinema. Unfortunately, Vigo was too ill to edit the film himself, and the film actually ended up being quite mutilated by Gaumont who was the distributor, or I guess would be considered the distributor of the film. And it was also edited by theater owners that showed it. It was very bizarre. There were actually three versions of the film. One in the original form in 1934, There was another one later on in 1934 and then finally there was the version we have now that was put together in 1990. All of this is according to a documentary Les Voyages de l'Atalant made in 2001 by Bernard Eisenscheitz. The first version that was shown was pretty much panned by critics. Some, Some of them said it was like vulgar and nonsensical. There were also critics who admired the film but Gaumont decided that it needed some serious changes. So later in 1934, Gaumont released the film under a new title, Le Chalon Qui Passe, which was the title of a song at the time, and the song was inserted into the film. So the original score by Maurice Joubert was removed. Finally, in 1990, a definitive version of the film was created by looking at Rush's, comparing prints, and looking at the original 1934 version that was found. What's interesting is that this film has a very interesting backstory. The backstory is Vigo is ill. Vigo is dying. And this is really going to be his last message, artistic message, to the world. He's got to put as much as he can into this film. Although, does he put too much? Does he work himself too hard? And then, What's sad is that he does put all that work and passion and energy into the film and then these forces much larger than him decide they're going to mutilate it and edit it and change it and do this and do that because it's not acceptable to them. And so it takes us literally decades for us to get an authoritative version of the film that is restored and high quality and great sound with the proper title and the proper music and all of that, and it made me think when I was doing this research, it it made me think it's almost miraculous that we even have some of these films. I mean, even the classic French films. I mean, so many films could have almost been lost. I mean, I think about The Passion of Joan of Arc. I think there was a version of it that was found at a mental institution. I did an episode about The Passion of Joan of Arc a few years ago. It was just by happenstance that this this version of the film was found at a mental institution. I know that some of Sacha Jit Ray's films were almost lost. Like, there's a whole series of things where we could have absolutely lost some of these films, and they are treasures of world cinema. And it's shameful in a way, right? We're very lucky to have alone in the condition that we have it. And it's the closest that we're probably ever going to get to the version that Vigo wanted us to have. It has a fascinating backstory, but I think it's really a testament to Vigo's vision and what he wanted to create. So now I'm going to talk all about alone. I think at its heart or at its core, La De is a film about a young couple and figuring out how to navigate how you go from being single to being married and how you go from one type of life to another, and how you make that work, and how you come together and create a couple, and create a life together. How do you do that? What does that look like? I think what is so beautiful about the film is that it is about young love. It's about two people who are in that early stage of love, where they've just gotten married, Everything's new. Everything's wondrous. They're enraptured by each other, in love with each other. They are creating a life together. Their their lives have been fused together. And you don't often see that in that conversation between Romare and Truffaut. I think Truffaut brought that up, that it's this rare film about young love, about a young couple starting out. I can't name a lot of films like that. It's kind of weird. Like you would think there would be more. I don't watch a ton of romantic films or a lot of films about couples or romance or anything like that, but none come to mind. So this is very, it's interesting, I think, as a film to show that these two young lovers just married. It's such a unique situation where you would go from your wedding onto a boat, onto this barge that you see at the beginning of the film. It's, in many ways, Juliet is going into this whole other world. So, Dita Parlow plays Juliet. She was a German actress, and she had done a few films, about a handful or more of films, in Germany before she did that alone. Jean Dasté is Jean, the groom, the husband in the film. And Michel Simon is Père Jules. He is the helper on the barge. The co-worker, I guess you could say. And he has his own little sidekick as well. But he's a big part of the film. It's about this couple. But Père Jules is one of the reasons why the film is so extraordinary. Is that it's about more than just this couple. And about the life that they are trying to navigate and create together. And the struggles of that. It doesn't, doesn't show some kind of idealistic view of young love. They struggle. They get mad at each other. She runs away. She gets bored. She gets frustrated. I love that too. I love in Vigo's films the flawed humanity that you see of people being, really flawed and, and making mistakes and hurting each other. Sometimes you hurt people that you deeply love. Père Jules. It's this very unique character. He is, as I said, what we would call in the South, a character. <laughs> he's unique. He's different. He's soft-hearted. Like, he's a he's a kind-hearted person, but then sometimes he can be very abrasive and rough. He loves his kittens, right? There's so many cats in this film, which I loved. I love cats. I don't have one. Uh, I have a dog right now that I've had for 10 years, Boomer. If any of you follow me, usually on Instagram... In the stories, I share pictures of him. (laughs) And many of you seem to think he's really adorable. And he is a really sweet dog. I did have a cat. She passed away in 2016. Her name was Bella. I'm more of a cat person. I love cats. So watching this film, I really loved all the cats in it. But Perjol, he's he's an interesting character throughout the film. I mean, I'll talk a bit about him as I'm talking about different scenes. But the film starts with the wedding of, of Juliet and Jean. And so they come out of the church after their wedding. I thought it was interesting how the the villagers or the attendees at the wedding are kind of talking about Juliet. One of them says that, She always has to be different. Another says that she was tired of village life, and watching it the second time, I saw how that was a foreshadowing of what would come later on when Juliet runs off to the city, and she has this desire for a more exciting life, a bit of a grander life, which makes sense. She's from this small village. She hasn't seen much of the world. The marriage to Jean may be a way out of that life. I think of women back then, and many of them had to be married off and and for many women marriage was a way to get out of their parents homes to get away from the control of their fathers and away from their families and to have a more independent life. But of course, sometimes you could be switching one life for a not so much better life sometimes for women in, in that day and age. So Juliet, I think, of course, she's in love with Sean. But I think also the wedding and, and being with him, it's also a way to have a different life. She's this country girl and she has dreams of a, of the big city. She's a woman who wants more. And I think for her, the city represents something more glamorous glamorous. and exciting and beautiful. And I understand that. That was something that about the film this time that really resonated with me of of wanting so much more for yourself, wanting so much more in life, and struggling to accept that this is all there is, like your very everyday ordinary existence, and not much happens, and not much, not much is going on for you. How do you accept what you have? I think our dreams can overwhelm us sometimes. I know that I myself get swept away by my dreams of other places, other lives I could have lived. It's something that I think about a lot, and I think when, when a lot of the pain and the grief surfaces around my father's passing, I do start to think about alternatives. lives, I start to think about, well, if he had lived What would I have done? What would I have become? Would I have been saved from all the suffering that I've gone through for over a decade? You know, my mental health and my physical health. And I mean, if you're a new listener, you may not know my backstory. I don't want to go into it for every episode, but I've lost a lot of people in my life. I struggle with depression, anxiety, agoraphobia. I struggle with physical health issues. So my life has been difficult for a long time. And I think that is probably why I'm such a dreamer, (laughs) is that I dream about all these places that I wish I could travel and lives that I wish I could have, and sometimes even with this podcast, I get to dreaming about stuff and wishing that, like, my life could be more and I could be involved in the film world, or that the podcast was really successful, <laughs> or something. And it's very small and marginal, and I'm nobody, so <laughs> it's just dreams, you know. Where you you wish you mattered more, you wish you were somebody, you wish that your life was more grand and more important than it really is. And even though that doesn't fit all of what Juliet wants, right? I'm projecting uh <laughs> onto her. I guess I'm saying like I understand some. Of of that. I grew up in a small town in the south in North Carolina and I don't live in North Carolina now but I still live in the south and I live in a very rural area and I don't have some kind of interesting life. So I I understand that about Juliet. I just understand her longing for more and her interest in the city. She's very interested in Paris and places like that and of course she would be She's lived in that little village, and then she goes into this very small, cramped quarters on the barge with Jean and Père Jules, and now she's sharing her life with a bunch of men. It's very small, and she's on the boat, and of course you would... You would want more. It's so interesting to me that very long walk at the beginning after the wedding when Julia and Jean are walking to the barge where he lives and works basically. He's the skipper of this boat that goes down the canals of France, right? I guess they're moving stuff and uh, transporting stuff and the barge will now be her home and her new life and she seems hesitant to even get on it and it's like she's crossing a threshold. Literally, she's going from the land to the water, but she's also going from her previous life, the one that she had with her family in a, small bil- in a small village as a single woman, to her new life with Jean on the barge as a married woman. And you also see that with like her, her family and friends and all the villagers are on the banks of the river, watching as the barge goes down the canal. And it's like this severing of her from that life completely. To me, there's something mournful about Dita Parlow in these scenes as though she's not wearing a wedding gown but a morning dress. You see her stand on the barge. Her back is to us. She has that long white veil and that white silk wedding dress and they make her look ghostly against the mist or the fog rising from the water of the canal. As I said, this is the image that I saw years ago or one of several images that I saw probably on Tumblr. I'm sure it was. It was so evocative to me, that I had to see the film for myself. For me, images are often the entry point into films, but not always. It could be a subject. If it's a biographical film, it may be an artist that I'm interested in. With the Belly of an Architect, it was a song. It was the soundtrack for the film uh, by Vim Merton, Mertens. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. He did the soundtrack for the Belly of the Architect. The Belly of an Architect. So for me, the entry point to that film was music. For that alone the entry point or what drew me to the film were were the, were the images of Dita Parlo in this wedding dress and her almost blending into the fog, almost like she's this ghost, but of course she's not. So it's so evocative to me and she's embarking on this new life that I'm sure she's uncertain about in many ways, leaving all that she's known, but at the same time, she probably wants to leave. As the villager said, she was bored or she wanted a more exciting life. So she she probably also sees it as an adventure, right? But I think there's definitely a hesitance at the beginning when she first gets on the barge. So she's standing there and the fog almost envelops her. And Jean goes to her and she seems to faint in his arms. He lies down on her and she starts to resist his advances. She seems very overwhelmed. So to me, it just seemed like she was uncertain at that time. She is leaving everything, as I said. She's entering this new life on the boat with these men. She doesn't really know. I doubt she barely knew Jean. Back then, I don't know how long courtship would have been, but I seriously doubt she knew a ton about him or that they dated for years, right? I mean, I'm sure this was a pretty short courtship. She certainly never lived with him, so this is all very new to her. She actually runs away from him, goes down the barge until he catches up with her. He's also attacked by some cats and then he picks her up and he carries her and they start to kiss. So to me, there was almost like there was this panic in her when she first got on board the boat. Maybe it's that moment when everything hit her, but at the same time, you can tell she's very in love with him. Maybe she's just scared at the beginning, which is understandable, I think. By, by the next morning, everything's fine. When she wakes up, Père Jules and his sidekick are serenading her with a song and It's very cute, her and Jean kiss and hold each other. They love to touch each other in this film. They really revel in each other's flesh and bodies. Truffaut mentioned some of that in that interview. Truffaut called it a carnal realism in the film. And he also said that the film has, quote, never been surpassed in its portrayal of the reality of the flesh in its carnal physical reality unquote. I loved that because that's something I noticed as well when I was watching the film. This is a sensual film and I love that. There's no sex scenes. There's no nudity in the film. There's no blatant or explicit sex. But it's sensual. It's beautiful and it's life-affirming in that way. I love when they're kissing. And I think she bites his ear at one time. And I love when they just sort of fall on the floor. Especially at the very end where they fall on the floor in each other's arms. It's romantic. It's a deeply romantic film. And the way that they are always touching and they're very connected to each other through their bodies and you'll see that later on in the very sensual scene where they're separated but they're in bed and they're both having sort of these erotic moments and it's like their very bodies are connected. There's some kind of cord that connects their two bodies together and the sensations. I just love how they're always engaged with each other's bodies and the flesh and the skin and touching. I love that it's sexy, it's romantic, it's sensual, and it's joyous. It's, I feel like representations of sex and sexuality these days lack joy. There's often violence connected to sex, whether it's in film or the horrible pornography that's mainstream now and that is quite degrading and violent towards women and it's like sex is wrapped up with violence and uh, threat and danger and we don't have romantic comedies like we did in the 1990s. I was thinking about that the other day. I was, what was I watching? Oh, I was watching Runaway Bride. It was on TV with my, uh, and my mom was watching it and I love Julia Roberts, especially from the 90s when she was in some wonderful romantic comedies like Notting Hill And Runaway Bride with Richard Gere, one of my all-time favorite actors. (laughs) I think he's gorgeous. I talked about him recently in my episode on Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. I have a huge crush on Richard Gere, but I was just thinking when I was watching that film, and it's so tender and loving, some of the scenes, we don't have romantic films like that anymore. That used to be the norm. You'd have a Nora Ephron film coming out every few years in the 90s. You had these wonderful romantic comedies. I know they're not perfect. I know some of them are cheesy. I know some of them don't have the best politics in them. I get that. I'm not idealizing them or anything like that, but I'm saying they showed relationships between men and women in loving, caring, sensitive ways and just showed a model of love, a model of romance, right? Like, where is that now? I don't know where we would find it. It's certainly not in any films being made. We don't have the romantic comedies and the romantic films we used to have. So what I'm trying to say is that La alone is deeply romantic, and it's also deeply sensual and erotic, and the two are interconnected. And it's beautiful because of that. And it's sexuality that is... And I think the French, a lot of times, do an interesting job with sexuality. Obviously, French films are sexy. They have a sexiness about them at times. And that alone has that sexiness, but it also has eroticism and romance as well. And I love that about it. I love that reveling in one another's bodies and flesh. And it's it's not dangerous or violent or degrading. It's mutual and beautiful. And, you know, she enjoys kissing him as much as he kisses her. And it's, yeah, it's, there is a little bit of violence in the film. Jean does get mad at her at times and he gets very jealous. So I don't want to minimize that, of course. But for the most part, when they're touching and they're kissing. It's a beautiful thing and it's nice to see something romantic like that. It's nice to see people enjoying each other's company and kissing and holding each other and touching each other. When a film is romantic, it can also be very life-affirming because romance and love and physical connection and physical touching is a deeply important part of the human condition. That's why I think this pandemic has been really difficult for people is not being able to touch us others not being able to hug each other like that has an effect on people to not be touched to not be held that was something that i noticed about latent was that carnal aspect of it that sensual aspect of it and you just feel their flesh through the screen almost it's very sensual and erotic i love it rewatching this film I also, it's so wonderfully structured because there are things that are hinted at at the beginning of the film that then come into fruition at the end of the film. So there's the scene of the villagers talking about Juliet and saying, oh, she doesn't like being ordinary. She wants more. She she has to be different and, and things like that. And then later on, she runs away to the city. And then there's also a scene early on where Jean is washing his face in this bucket and Juliet comes along and she says, don't you know that you can see your beloved's face in the water? You have to open your eyes in the water and you'll see your beloved. She insists that it's true that when she was younger, she saw it. And she says that she even saw Jean's face in the water before she even met him. And that's how she recognized him and knew he was the one. And this is such an important scene because I had only watched the film once. I I guess I didn't realize or I didn't remember it exactly. So this little scene sets up what will happen in the underwater scene later on in the film and all of it's explained right there that's why he goes into the water later on in the film is that he's searching for her and she tells him this whimsical unusual little story that if you open your eyes underwater you can see the person that you love again and she even tells him after he does it a few times and he says he doesn't see her she says one day One day he'll see her when he really tries and that's what ends up happening later on in the film, which I'll talk in depth about that scene when I get to it. Early on in the relationship, there starts to be cracks. He has to work a lot on the boat and that creates some friction between the two of them where he is working a lot, especially at night. He doesn't even come to bed. So he works through the night and she's often alone. And this starts to create friction, as I said. And it also, I think she starts to get bored or she starts to feel stifled in that space. She's only seeing the riverbanks, and she wants to know if they're going to stop somewhere, like at a big city. And when the radio comes on, and it's talking about Paris, she loves to sit there and listen to that. She's very enamored with Paris. I think they eventually do arrive in Paris, or they're close to it. They stop the barge for a little while, and I think that Paris is nearby or something like that. And there's this wonderful scene. The thing about this film is that there's not a lot that happens in it. (laughs) This is not a film with a lot of plot. It's not a film in which a lot happens. Like if you tried to explain it to somebody who had never seen it, oh, it's just this couple on this boat and she leaves and then she comes back and everything's okay. (laughs) Like that's all that happens. It's their life on the boat and then their separation, and then their reunion. It's a very simple story, but Vigo brought so much more to it, right? He had this gift for the way that the characters interact with each other, I think. Like, Père Jules is the perfect example. Think of that scene where he's holding up the skirt so that she can sew the hymn, And it's just such a, such a fun little scene where he's holding the skirt and he has the skirt on, right? And later on, this wonderful scene where Juliette, she goes to Père Jules room and it's really like a curio cabinet, right? With all these treasures that he's amassed during his world travels. He even has a marionette doll, which made me think of one of my favorite films called The Double Life of Veronique by the Polish director, Christoph Kieślowski. And it got me wondering when I saw the scene this time. I wonder if he had saw that alone. I wonder if he had seen it because he has a marionette scene in The Double Life of Veronique. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if anybody would have any way of knowing that, but it just made me think of it. She's in his room and she says that like, She never thought he would have all this stuff in here. It's really fascinating to her. And it got me thinking this scene, how you never really know the inner world of a person or you never know the full backstory of a person. It's almost like these curios are a representation of Perigel's life and his very soul. She thought he was just some ordinary man who worked on the barge. And He is. But he also, like all of us, has a rich and complex history and he has his own experiences and he has stories to tell just like she does. And you know, as we walk past one another in the world, how many of us stop to think about other people and their lives? How many of us ask all the things another person has seen and known? There's always more under the surface. Père Jules is not particularly attractive. He, he's not handsome. He's not good looking. He's just an ordinary man that most people would not notice who would be quite invisible in the world. But he has his own inner life and his own memories and his own experiences and there's much more to him than what can be seen on the surface or on the outside. And through touching these items that belong to Père Jules, Juliet in a way is touching all the places that he's traveled. All the places that she has not been and has not seen. They're like little pieces of the world that she still has yet to explore and she's connected to those places through these treasures that belong to Père Jules. She even finds a pair of hands in a jar. Those were real, by the way. That was a real jar with real hands in it. He says it's the hands of his dead friend and that's all that he has left of him. That's, I mean, I guess that would be a strange moment for sure. That's not a whimsical moment. There are definitely, now that I think about it, Romare might have been correct. (laughs) There are strange moments in the film there are strange and weird like grotesque I would say almost grotesque scenes in the film in particular this one with the hands in the jar for sure like definitely a grotesque and strange moment. And then Perjul strips down to show his tattoos. I thought that was really interesting. And Michel Simon, in an interview, he said that later on he got real tattoos. So he actually had some tattoos, but of course not the ones that you see in the film. Once again, I think it's an example of there's things beyond the surface. Like you look at Perjul, and you'd never think that he his body is covered in tattoos. Like, you just don't think of him in that way or imagine that. And then he strips down and you see this whole other layer. I think in this scene, it's about seeing different layers of a person. That up until that point, Juliet had just kind of seen Père Jules as, as a worker. You know, as somebody who was just there in the background on the boat. And this is the first scene or the first time when she actually engages with him as a person and asks him questions about his life and his travels and really goes into an intimate space with him. It's a small space, it's a cramped space, and there's an intimacy to it. I think when you invite somebody literally into your bedroom, I think that's a very vulnerable thing and there's exposure that's happening in that moment of, somebody being in your intimate space looking at items in your room. I don't know if it was his bedroom or just a cabin. I don't know. But it's his inner sanctum in a way. And she's in it. And so in a way, it's a very intimate scene between the two of them. And Jean walks in on that. And he senses, I think, the intimacy of it. And he's uncomfortable with her being with Père Jules in that way. Of them being alone together. Them being together without him present. He yells at her. I think that's also when he hits her on the head. So it's this moment of violence towards Juliet too. And you can tell that she's very upset by it. It was a shocking scene, honestly. Because up to that point, you had not seen... Jean do anything like that you see how things can change very quickly but he doesn't like the intimacy that she's sharing with Perjol and throughout the film this recurs his jealousy his possessiveness that he doesn't like her talking to other men he doesn't like her giving attention to other men, and it does create a tension in their marriage, that jealousy. Eventually, they do finally go out in the city a little bit, and they go to this club where there's this street peddler who has all these things, and he has like this big drum. and He sings to Juliet, and that's another example of where he gets really jealous, and she dances with him, and later on, I guess the street peddler had offered to take her to Paris, and He says that they won't be gone long, and so Juliet is back at the barge later on, and she gets dressed, and she sneaks away to secretly meet this man, I think, but he never shows up, and she's on this tram that takes her into the city. When Jean sees that Juliet has left him, he disembarks the boat. Like, he has the boat leave, even though they were actually supposed to stay there for two days. So, he is essentially stranding Julia in this city. So, he does it out of these very hurt feelings. It's a very hurtful thing. If you think about it, this is really the first test of their marriage, the first test of their relationship. Both of them have erred. Both of them have made a big mistake. She made a mistake in leaving the boat and sneaking away. And then he made a big mistake by saying, well, I'm just going to leave her here and we're going to go on. I mean, that was a very horrible thing to do, actually. I would say what he does is worse. He is stranding a woman without money on her own in a city that she's never been in before. And he's just leaving her. I mean, that's very, very cruel. So I'm a little conflicted about that actually that he would treat her in that way cuz it's just incredibly cruel to do that to her what i found really fascinating was that i would imagine that for much of her life juliet has had this this dream of the city she was so interested in it you know listening to the radio broadcasts and then talking about wanting to go out on the city you can tell that she's very interested in it but when she's actually there in the city. It's a very bleak and dark place. She goes around. She's looking in the windows. She even sees some marionette dolls, which sort of connects back to the marionette doll of Perjol. But it's not the place of glamour and excitement and adventure that she had imagined. This is not the Paris of her dreams. There are drunks, rude people, bleakness. It's a scary place. A man steals her purse, bunch of people chase him and attack him. It's a place of violence, of almost degradation, really. She wanders around the city. She's alone. She's abandoned. No place is hiring, so she has no way to find a job. It's actually a really dangerous situation for her to be in as a woman, and she's at a lot of risk in that situation, and Jean put her in it, and I find that really, yeah, I find that pretty sick and disgusting, actually, to just abandon this woman. In a city that she's never been in. I mean, it's actually just, it kind of upsets me now that I think about it. So while Juliette is wandering around Paris in this really dark part of the city, I guess you could say, where there's a lot of suffering and violence and sort of danger and threat, Jean is back at the barge and he's basically miserable. He is in a lot of pain and he misses her and he regrets what he did. There's this very whimsical moment that I think is quite famous during this part of the film where Pierre Jules takes out a record and he puts his finger on the record and, and music starts to play when he does that. That's a good example of Vigo being very sly and whimsical and interesting and making the ordinary into something sort of fantastical, unbelievable it's like, well, where is this music coming from? And it ends up being his little sidekick who's playing the accordion. And so that's the source of the music. But it's it's just an example. Like there's so many examples in the film from that scene with the record to Perigel's cabin with all the little curios and the treasures, the hands in the jar, all these little things. And it's like the film could have easily not had those things in it. it, had those things in it because of Vigo and his direction and his vision. Because Jean is so miserable, he remembers what Juliet told him about the water. This is like one of those scenes that feels like perfection and it feels like cinema with a capital C or maybe all the letters would be capitalized. (laughs) Like it's cinema. You know what I mean? Like what does that mean? I don't know, but it's the essence of cinema to me is this underwater scene. I... I I struggle to even put it into words. The magic that it still makes me feel every time I watch it. It is that unique. I think it's one of the greatest scenes in the history of cinema. I'm going to go that far with it. It is just that magical her in that wedding dress and veil on the boat in the fog that's a big haunting image for me and even more is the haunting image of her body floating in space right or or we're supposed to believe her body is underwater and it's floating there when Jean dives into the water and he's desperately searching for her so and he remembers obviously what she said earlier because Vico had planted that seed and then the seed grows and becomes this beautiful scene he remembers if he opens his eyes under water he can see his beloved he'll see juliet and so he opens his eyes And there she is. She's in her wedding dress and her veil. And she's dancing in the water. She's floating. She's suspended in the water. She looks very ethereal and ghostly. She looks almost as ghostly as she looked at the beginning of the film when she was standing on the boat in the fog. It's a scene that captures romantic longing. It's such a powerful moment that shows a man's aching for the woman that he loves. Him aching for somebody that he's lost. It's a loss in a way he has lost her and he wants to find her and he cannot physically find her and so he goes into the water to try to find her because he's searching for her and there's just something even as I say it and I talk about it very overwhelming for me and the imagery of it where you see her body and then you see her face with the wind and her hair is blowing back and that huge gorgeous magnificent smile on Dita Parlo's face and that big laugh that she does and that smile and oh it takes my breath away as I try to talk about it. It absolutely takes my breath away. I I don't even know what more to say about like I this scene is one of is one of my all-time favorite scenes in the history of cinema. I don't care what anyone else says. It is so magical. It's magical. And I came across this thing that I wrote a few years ago about Jean Vigo. I think I, I don't think I watched La at the time. I don't know if I rewatched it. I have a terrible memory. But I think I, a few years ago, I had this time when I was watching some of Vigo's other films. I watched Apropos Denise, Tori, the one about the swimmer and Zéro de Conduit. Like those were the ones that I watched. I don't think I watched that alone, but I wanted to see his other short films. And so I watched them and I ended up writing this this short thing, I'll probably share it on my website, herheadandfilms.com, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but I wanted to read it because it's personal, and it also talks about this underwater scene, and it talks about some different things, and so I just want to read it to you and share it. So this is what I wrote a few years ago. I've been thinking about Jean Vigo's underwater scenes in Tauri and La Of all the scenes in his films, I come back to those. I think it's because water itself holds such meaning in my life. For Vigo, water seems to function in various ways. It's a site where the body can be free, liberated, and sensual. Think of swimmer Jean Thierry, barely clothed, playing underwater, bubbles streaming from his mouth, a gorgeous smile on his face. In L'Adelon, water represents a connection to the beloved. The new groom jumps into the water because he was told that if you open your eyes underwater, you can see the one you love. His wife has run away. He wants to see her again, so he goes underwater to reconnect with her. The water creates access, a portal to the one who is lost, a way of reaching her. There's a ghostliness about these scenes, even though the actors in them were alive. The way water reduces bodies to light and shadow and the ethereal. When I was a kid, I loved swimming. It was the only time I was truly free. My body no longer weighed down. I could do flips and handstands and laps. I could sink to the bottom and hold my breath as long as possible. I could float on top and feel the sun on my skin. It was a magical place, just as it is in Vigo's films. A place of possibilities. A place of dreams. I've never swam in the ocean. I rarely even got to swim as a child. Because it was a rare experience, I think I cherished it all the more. There was a local public pool that I sometimes went to, and there was a family friend who worked at a hotel, and we got to use the pool there occasionally during the summer. I'd always take goggles so that I could go to the bottom of the pool and then look up and see the sunlight streaming through the surface. I felt suspended in time, fossilized in beauty. The sunlight would make these tessellations on the bottom of the pool I was mesmerized. I didn't want to leave the water ever. I hated having to return to the real world. I always wished I had a camera to capture what I saw. What that watery world looked like. After my father died, the only reprieve I felt from the grief was when I got to swim in the pool at a local hotel. My mom and I scrounged some money from somewhere and went for a few days. I still remember swimming in that pool, floating on top of the water, my arms and legs stretched out. I felt released, reborn. The grief was still there. It's always there. It's still there even now. But the water held me and soothed me, and gave me a few days of peace. I know I'm not writing it properly. I know you can't feel what it was like to be inside my body underneath the water, just like you can't feel the grief that throbbed in my veins and that lives inside me still. I'm drawn to water and to the lives lost to it. Wolf with the rocks in her pockets and the river ooze, forcing herself to drown when she could swim, forcing herself into death. Ophelia with her flowers and her soaked skirts, babbling about her dead father. Maybe searching for a way to get back to him. Water as life force. Water as death force. And I remember my father in the water. A picture of him on a float, basking in the summer sunshine, so alive and so real. Pictures of me and him at pools or lakes, now only together in photos, forever separated. I wish I could open my eyes under water and see him again. I wish he was there, emerging from the depths, servicing back into life. So that's my essay. I wrote it a few years ago. As I was rereading it just now, I realized that I think what's so unique about Vigo is that he captured the underwater world. We don't have a lot of films that look at life underwater. Obviously nature documentaries, but I'm talking about human bodies in the water. And I think he captured some of that experience a little bit. And it's so interesting that he put that, that scene underwater with that story that if you open your eyes, you'll see the beloved. The fact that he put it in water, that's what makes it special is that it's, it's under, underwater instead of on land or wherever else you could put it. It's the fact that the setting is, is watery and is in this liquid world that's so alien to us in some ways, right? But that's what makes it so magical, is that it is part of this other aquatic world, and I think that puts it on another level as well, and it gives it that dreaminess. And then later on after this scene, there's that beautiful, breathtaking scene of erotic desire that I talked a little bit about uh, earlier. Jean and Juliet are separated, sleeping in separate beds, obviously. She's in Paris somewhere, and he's on the boat, but they're both... Both in bed. And they're covered in this polka dot. Shadow design, and it's not clear what that is or where that's coming from. But they are both covered in polka dot. Uh, they're covered in the shadows of polka dots. It's it's so strange. Once again, this is another example of like the surrealism that's in Vigo's work. That this is surreal. This is outside normal reality. So it's so interesting to me the way his films merge and mix the real. So... Oh and the not real, or the fantastical, or the, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but the magical, I mean, would that be a good word? Like, things that are rooted in the real, rooted in the ordinary, with things that are outside of this world, and that that are strange, and different, and that you don't have an explanation for. It's the inexplicable that is in his films. Like, where is this polka dot shadow coming from, right? Like, it's inexplicable. It can't be explained, and in that way, there's something very mysterious about his work, and now that I think about it, this is why I like doing these episodes, I literally come to revelations as I'm talking, and it reminds me a bit of Krzysztof Kieślowski's work, like there's, he has the same quality to his films, of the mysterious, of the otherworldly, or the surreal- or the, the magical, things that can't be explained in everyday reality. Things that are larger than life, outside of life, that almost transcend life. And that's what you find in Vigo. That's what you find in La are or these, this mixture of ordinary life, of realism, with things that are fantastical and out of this world, and strange and mysterious, and that you can't explain. That's what I love. It's what I love about this film. They're in these beds, and it's like their bodies are in communication with each other, the cord that connects their bodies to each other. They're touching themselves. They're simulating erotic actions or erotic release in a way, and you can tell that they're longing for each other. It's rare to see this kind of eroticism in a film of that period, I would think. It's not explicit, and it's not graphic, but it is sensual, and it is erotic, and there's a lot that's implied in the film and what is happening in these scenes. It's hard to even explain that scene, but re-watching it, I was like, oh my god. Like, this is amazing. (laughs) Like, this is stunning. I I was blown away by that scene. Something else Truffaut brought up in that one interview was that that made a big impression on him. And you can tell with the 400 blows that Vigo influenced him in some way. But he said when he saw Light Alone, I think he said as a teenager, he didn't realize that it was made in the 1930s. He thought it was a more current film, you know, I guess after World War II. And I feel the same way. Watching it is that it feels, I'm not going to say it feels contemporary. Obviously not. But it certainly doesn't feel like something out of the 1930s to me at all. It feels like several decades beyond that and the this erotic scene is part of it like something about that erotic scene to me feels much more modern much more modern and well beyond the 1930s the the imagery in this film I can't get over it. Eventually, Jean is str- is struggling. He almost has a breakdown over not being able to find Juliet and having to live without her. And he is really struggling. He almost loses his job. And it's at that point that Pere Jules decides he's got to go out and he's got to look for Juliet. He's got to do it. He happens to walk by a store and Juliet is in the same store and she's gone in there. It's a music store. She decides that she's going to play the bargeman's song, and it happens to be coming out of the speakers on the sidewalk. Per Jules walks by. Again, another example of Vico's whimsicality and something that's inexplicable and like the mystery and how two people are connected to each other. I'm getting a lot of Kishlovsky out of that, and I I have no idea if he even watched Vico or if Vico had any influence on him, but I'm just saying these are some themes that I see this similar to each other, mysterious things that connect people, mysterious coincidences, and the way that people are brought together in inexplicable ways. And that's something that happens with this scene where Paris Jules just happens to be walking by the music store. She happens to play that song and he walks in and he finds her. And it's almost like this big, grand message of love that love will find a way, right? Lovers will find each other again, like against all odds, against the odds, these two people will find each other again. It's like grand and it's deeply romantic in that way that these two people who were separated find each other again and are reunited. Like there's something really beautiful about that. I think that's why this film like raised my spirits up. It's a hope film it's a joyous film it's a it's a film just filled with life throbbing with life as I said such magic and Paris Jules finds her and takes her back to the bar I love how he like picks her up puts her over his shoulder and Juliet returns it's this gorgeous reunion of the two lovers and love has won I think that's the thing about this film that's beautiful love wins love conquers all. Love is victorious. And these two people who were separated, who made mistakes, and who hurt each other, they reconcile. And more importantly, they forgive. They forgive each other. She knows she shouldn't have left, but he shouldn't have left her either. And in a way, they left each other. They lost each other. They kind of abandoned each other. But it's because they both had moments of weakness, right? Like, she was bored. She wanted to see the city. She wanted more. And she had her dreams of what she thought the city would be. And of course, the city was nothing like her dreams. The city was just a city. And it was grimy. And it was dangerous at times. It wasn't the thing of her dreams. I don't know. To me, that's almost like a lesson. It's like, sometimes you have to find a way to be grateful for what you have. And to realize that you have enough. And your life may not be perfect. And it may have hardship. And it may have difficulty. But sometimes what you're dreaming of, it doesn't exist. There is no place where there's no suffering or no pain. You know, I think about my dreams of of Paris or my dreams of France, I would still struggle in France. I would still hurt. I would still grieve. I would still, you know, have all the problems that I have here in rural, in the rural south, right? And I think in a way it's like maybe she had to see the city for herself. She had to see the thing that she had dreamed about in order to let go of the dream and to just see it for what it is. It's not about making it perfect and it's not about making it horrible. It's about seeing life for what it Is and there's going to be moments that are beautiful and transcendent, and there's going to be moments of pain and suffering, and then there's going to be moments in between. That's what most of us live in: is the in between, in between the tragedy and the ecstasy. We live in the reality of life, and it's complicated, and it's flawed, and it's ordinary, and it's boring. (laughs) But that's where we live: doing our laundry, doing our jobs. Trying to find time for the people that we love, trying to find time for films and books and whatever we care about. That's what we live in. You know, we live in that ordinary gray area <laughs> that uh, we dream sometime of escaping. and it's like she had to she had to see it for herself, I think, because she would always have wondered, oh, what is it like? What is Paris like? But Paris would have been even more special if Jean had been with her. And so maybe one day they'll go back to Paris, but they'll be together. And it'll be more fun and more beautiful. And maybe it's so dank and bleak because she's alone and Jean is not with her. And Jean could have taken her around to the better places. She was so impatient to see the city that she wasn't really able to see the best of it or to have the best experience of it. So she made her mistake and obviously he made his mistake of leaving her there, abandoning her. But they're able to come back together and forgive each other, forgive each other in their moment of hurt. She was bored. She was hurt at being so alone and him not really being there much and working so much. And he was hurt because she left and he felt that she was sort of disrespecting him probably. And in his hurt feelings, he left her there. So they both made mistakes and then they reconcile and they forgive each other. They forgive each other for those mistakes. And I do feel like this is the big test of their marriage. And I love that in the end, they're reunited and they're brought back together. And love returns. Love wins. Love conquers all. (laughs) And it's such a romantic film in that way. And at first, she's hesitant when she walks in. She's not sure what to do or maybe she's not sure that he'll even to see her. Maybe she's not sure that he's forgiven her. That he might be mad at her. But then they put their arms out and she just runs into his arms and they fall on the floor. They're hugging. They're kissing. It's just this joyous reunion. I loved it. I just loved it. I love this film. I'm really glad that I talked about it again. I think Vigo. If he had not died so young, I really think he would have continued to make some special films, and from what I read, he was working on a lot of projects, and there was still so much that he wanted to do, and he was living as much of his life as he could right up until the end. He gave a lot of himself. I think he would have been even bigger. He would have been even more influential, but just with the few films that he put out, he was very influential, and he will continue to be. He is a very well-respected, and beloved director. He really is, and so grateful for Lata I love it. I will always love it. It's certainly one of my favorites. It's definitely in my canon that I have created. So, I hope that you liked my discussion of this film. I really enjoyed talking about it. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Paulina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for your support. You make the podcast possible. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.